This program is brought to you by Emory University. Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you this morning. Welcome to the second of the Dean's Lecture Series uh, that we began this semester uh, as an opportunity to gather the community, faculty, staff, and students um, for wonderful intellectual opportunities as an entire community. Today, we are particularly excited to be joined by those who are wrapping up with us the Fall Conference on Preaching as well as the members of the Sherman Board who are here to consult with students about their experiences as Sherman scholars as well, to, as, well as to uh, uh, make decisions and vision their work into the future. So uh, we're a full community today and we're delighted that everybody is here together. Um, I know that some people will be still in line getting lunches and coming in as they uh, are able. So. We'll expect a little bit of movement for a while, uh, and that, that works fine for this, um, for this set of events. Um, I want to thank particularly Tom Long, who imagined a fall conference that would feature preaching, and uh, who was the visionary and the energetic um, pusher behind such an idea, and we're delighted for his leadership. He also participated as one of the presenters in the conference. And none of that would have been possible without the serious and dedicated logistical work that Bob Winstead put together. So we're grateful for their leadership. Rick Cravaco, Alice Parkington, April Bogle, and Rachel Smith DeLoon all um, put the pieces together in their own way for a variety of things to make this work. And we're really grateful for that. For those of you who were not able to participate in the fall conference, we had uh, Otis Moss III, Teresa Fry Brown, Alice Rogers, James Howell, Anna Carter Florence, Claudio Carvelis, and our featured speaker this morning, Gary Simpson. So um, we look for some of the products from that conference on our website and other places. Today, our featured speaker is somebody who's already preached at the preaching conference. And so today, um, yeah, so some of you heard his powerful sermon at the preaching conference. And uh, so today he talks about preaching and gives us a lecture, um, as did all the featured speakers at the conference. If you were there for the sermon for Otis Moss III, you noticed perhaps that after that sermon, which featured the concept of blue notes, Somebody took over the piano and uh, got going afterwards. Well, that was Gary Simpson, uh, who is an accomplished musician. He sings, he plays the piano and organ, and is a composer and lyricist. So he's a multi-talented guy. Uh, Reverend Dr. Gary Simpson is the senior pastor of Concord Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. He was ordained at the age of 20 by the Eastern Union Missionary Baptist Association. He's been committed to the development and nurture of the pastoral call, and he currently serves as the assistant professor of homiletics at Drew University, another official United Methodist seminary. And um, he also serves at Union, I'm sorry, he mentors four full-time pastoral residents at Concord. 
His numerous religious affiliations including, include chairing the Fund for Theological Education. That's a very powerful position in theological education and one that's been, I'm sure, uh, taxing in recent years as they vision their future anew together with new leadership. And he has um, been a member of the Long Range Planning Committee for the Progressive National Baptist Convention reaching across and wedding those two arenas of theological education and the church. So we are delighted that somebody who's so gifted in preaching, so gifted in the academy, and so gifted as a musician is with us today to deliver our dean's lecture. So welcome, Dr. Simpson. We're delighted to have you. Uh, I am grateful to be here. I'll have some introductory remarks, but before the word, I thought it would be good to have a prelude. So I want you to listen to something for me and with me. Those of you who missed the lyrics, perhaps because of the music, let me run back through them with you very quickly. Just the first verse of this hymn. <laughs> Human beings to a mob. What's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a non-believer who don't believe in anything? We make it out alive. All right, all right. No church in the wild. First verse. Tears on the mausoleum floor. Blood stains the Colosseum door. Lies on the lips of a priest. Thanksgiving disguised as a feast. Rolling in the Rolls Royce Corniche. Only the doctors got this. I'm hiding from the police. Cocaine seats, all white, like I got the whole thing bleached doing drug dealer chic. 
I'm wondering if a thug's prayers reach. Is pious pious because God loves pious? Socrates asks, whose bias do y'all seek? All for Plato's screech. I'm out here bawling. I know y'all hear my sneaks. Jesus was a carpenter. Yeezy laid beats. Overflow the Holy Ghost. Get the hell up out of your seats. Preach. I am delighted to be here with you today and to have this privilege to speak with you, to have participated in this preaching conference and to have been here from what one of my older members, late members would say, from kiver to kiver, from the beginning to the end. I want to express gratitude for the opportunity to be here. I'm grateful for Candler, to be at Candler, which has been a blessing for me. You heard in my introduction that I have four residents in a pastoral study, or actually in a pastoral work at Concord now. Two of those are now really just last year's graduates from uh, Candler. Uh, some of you would know Leslie Houseworth, uh, now Fields, who has a brand new baby girl, Chloe, who is as precious as you would want to know, and uh, Eric Howard, who are both doing very well and to whom I promised that I would not embarrass this week. Uh, and in my first uh, church, I was privileged to pastor people in a town called Morristown, New Jersey. And James Alexander, who is a graduate, and he still hangs around here doing all kinds of things, uh, was one uh, just a small young man running around the church uh, at that time. And I am so pleased to see his promise both as a pastor and a scholar. I'm glad to see him. I must confess that I'm humbled to have this particular space in the dean's lecture. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to remember my freshman year at Denison University and the fond memories I had of taking a political science course. And, in fact, your dean, Jan Love, was my instructor. Uh, we were both prodigies. Uh, <laughs> and uh, all of the things uh, in, in that school that tended to have a certain kind of bend to it, for her to speak even in that, in that department also, which uh, had a certain kind of bend to it, that uh, to have her speak early in her career about the issues of justice and peace uh, was an important thing for me and a marking thing for me. And I'm grateful that you have her as your dean at this time. Uh, so I want to spend my time today talking about a subject matter about which I am currently writing. Uh, you catch me now uh, as a person between two sabbaticals. I have just finished a three and a half month uh, sabbatical from the church. And I am presently in a semester sabbatical away from teaching. And in this time, when you spend a lot of time alone, you get a lot of time to think. And one of the things that I am interested in uh, is that in this 21st century, that I want to talk about pastoral preaching. What does it mean to preach as a pastor? 
particularly in a culture in which, and a time in which uh, the preaching that we hear, even in a person's home base, uh, tends to be more performance-driven and to give a show uh, or to educate or to edutain in some people's conversation. I want to talk about that. We all believe, at least we want to believe as preachers that, and pastors, that we, in fact, both in pastoring and preaching, we shape the community. But I am in curious about in what ways does the reverse of that conversation happen? In what ways does the community and being a pastor shape and form and inform our preaching? One of my favorite quotes of my predecessor, Gardner Taylor, at Concord Church was the sobering observation that one is not called to be pastor, but to become pastor. And in the 21 years of pastoring this 165-year-old center city congregation, I have preached at least 40 sermons a year. Add to that the 700-plus funerals I have done, countless weddings, baby dedications, house blessings, silver, golden, and diamond wedding anniversaries, house visits, and house calls. Both my person and my preaching have been profoundly and wondrously transformed in that 21 years. I also stand as a teacher of preaching in seminary, where every year my heart aches for the churches and the pastors that we are freshly sending them. We have created a pastor, preacher today, who believes that his or her duty as a pastor and preacher is somehow disconnected from his and her identity in a special location within the body of Christ. If you have been to any conference in the church in the last 15 years, you have been told somewhere about the charismata, the spiritual gifts of the church uh, given to the body of Christ, spoken of in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, all of which reference the quote-unquote office or gift of the pastor as one part of the body of Christ. In practice, however, we treat preaching and pastoring as an out-of-body experience, as something we do to or on the congregation as opposed to something that we do among the body as an expression of our particular location within the body of Christ. And notice especially in the Ephesians passage in the fourth chapter and the uh, 11th verse there, in the listing of all of the gifts, there is one gift that appears to be a couplet, and that is pastor and teacher. So I want to talk about this, and, and before getting into the nuts and bolts of it, I want to start and lay the foundation, as you heard Otis Moss preach the other night, some of you did, about the foundation that was laid that gave, that caused uh, the older generation to weep and the young generation to shout. And this foundation, which is the one thing that I think as we 
send our ministers off from seminary and we want to find out do they have what it takes to pastor and preach and all of the skills and training and things, we forget to ask one question. And it is the question that is somewhat a turning of a question that we hear at the end of John's gospel in the 21st chapter where uh, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. What is interesting, I think the thing we haven't been paying attention to is that as we talk about that text, we talk about it in terms of Peter's devotion to Christ leading him to feed the sheep. But we don't pay attention to the fact that Jesus uses the possessive pronoun my to remind Peter and us that the love that is being expressed, you don't just love Jesus, you love everything about Jesus, including the things and the persons that are his possession. These are my lambs, feed them. So the question really that we don't ask, that we need to ask is, if you are going to pastor, do you love the people? There's a great article out in the current issue of uh, Christian Century. Peter Marty writes it, uh, and it, that is the question, do you love people? It is the forgotten question that we need to ask. And he delineates this love in a wonderful way. Uh, and he says that loving them means that we approach what we do as if the people really matter. The congregation truly matters. And we love them as they are, not as we wish them to be. I'll throw out a few books because that's what I do. I love to suggest. Here's a book. Check this out. If you have not seen Eugene Peterson's book, uh, The Pastor, A Memoir, you need to read that book. There's a scene in that book where he talks about a a collective of pastors near his church who are gathering every week to uh, speak with a psychologist because they are noticing some of the evidences of mental illness and disease in their congregation. Not to turn them into psychologists, but to give them some of the first steps so that they can be, as it were, the kind of uh, the, the first steps of help to people who might be in crisis. He said they met every Thursday and they would they would talk about some disorder or disease, talk about it for an hour and then do a group session. He said after about uh, uh, a few weeks of that, he noticed that his relationship with the people changed. Having the data of the psychologist now, when he stepped into the pulpit, he saw the people in his church as people not longer as people, but problems that needed to be fixed. And that's where the light came on and should come on for many of us um, in that uh, pastors are not psychologists. Our job is not to fix the people, but to love them where they are and to give them, as, Peter, as, as Peterson would say, give them an opportunity to love to be loved as they are, and to worship the God who transforms them. Some, some 
of us and our and those and those uh, pulpit committees and others who look for pastors really have the wrong criteria. They look for somebody who has a certain kind of interpersonal skill gift. You know, you've ever met them, and I'm sure there's some who are here. You're just good with people, interpersonal skills. You don't have any trouble saying good morning, starting the fire, being the first person out on the dance floor, all those kind of things. <laughs> but Marty says that we can't, loving people is recognizing that we cannot confuse somebody who has good interpersonal skills with a person who has a pastor's heart. And unfortunately, loving people is tough work. And that, Marty will say that love is its own reward. He says, and I quote him here, I need to see people for the depth of their humanity, for the colorful surprise that God has tucked into their breath. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Not for their perceived value to the church's ministry or to me personally. Some of our ideas of evangelism in our church is going to find all the good people who will make us look better. <laughs> the truth is, Marty says, that love grows deeper over time. Again, remembering the words of Gardner Taylor, you don't, one is not called to be pastor, but to become pastor. And then love, because of what it is, it requires a deep and inner desire to love. In order to love the people, you really have to have it in you to love the people. Amen, somebody. <laughs> With love as this backdrop then, if this is it, that the first question we should ask people who are thinking about the pastor is not how well they do with all of the skills that are necessary for preaching. And here is the other thing that I have discovered, too, in my own tradition as a Baptist, that um, we, we call people for the, without asking this question. So here is a person who preaches a good few sermons. The sermons are nice. Somebody says to him or her, you know, you preach pretty well. Maybe you ought to think about getting a church. So they get a church, and after six months, the congregation is miserable and the preacher is miserable. Why? Because they have not asked this question about relationship between pastor and people. That preaching is more than just getting up to tell you what I want you to know that God said to me this week. <laughs> With this love as a backdrop, then I want to define pastoral preaching as a creating of both the language and the relationships that both model and build community. I will define what that looks like at the end, and you'll help me to refine that definition as we end. Let's define pastoral first. In this world in which we live, technology teaches us so much about ourselves than we really want to know. Think about it. iPad, iPhone, iPod, all stuck on i. Very interesting. All these things of technology are centered on i. The standard word processor in my, uh, in my computer uh, has to be trained to learn 
both the verb and adjectival form of the word pastor. In fact, it does not recognize the verb pastoring. It changes it to pasturing. And the descriptive word pastoral is not even in its vocabulary. Interesting that our, our contemporary time has no word in its common vernacular uh, that, that we would all share. And there's some really strange words that are in that 30,000 word dictionary, but the verbing of pastor is not there, nor is the adjectival form pastoral something. It is our contribution to the world of language to speak about our work not only as who I am, but to borrow uh, from uh, a, a variation on English, who I be. <laughs> to get a better understanding of this word pastoral, then I want to step outside of the confines of our usual theological jargon and church speak. Let's get out of all of the understanding of judicatory and, and bishopric and all of the things that are ours in ecclesiastical language. There are some ways to enter into the pastoral conversation by looking in on some other disciplines. For example, uh, we may find some clues in the world of the study of literature. There's a whole genre of literature in Western culture called pastoral literature. In it, uh, which begins in what the world would call, Western world would call classical origins. Aristotle and others have been uh, noted by scholars of pastoral language to have pastoral uh, conversations in their literature through Elizabethan drama, including both 18th century pastoral poetry uh, to contemporary American nature writing. All of these things represent a legacy and a history of what the uh, people in the literal world, in the literary world, call pastoral. It was first used as a very descriptive word. Pastoral, uh, and meaning shepherding, was principally known in its first study as the speeches that shepherds gave to one another. You look in literature, you see a shepherd talking. It's the unique conversation that shepherds have with one another. And from that, pastoral began to, people who studied it start to think about it thematically, that pastoral had something to do with the country, as opposed to the city, I mean. Not country as in republic, but country and simple living. And the theme of retreat and return, using the culture, the, the country, and the city as juxtaposition. This, this idea of, of getting back to something, a more simple way, a more earthy way, a more natural way, and we'll talk about some of those implications for our preaching in a moment. But of course, whenever you have juxtaposition, as a good preacher, you know, there's always pushback from the other side. So while some people were longing for us to get back and ha hallowing the things that were um, 
of the country and saw them as good things. There are also the, the city and, and the industrializing and those who were technology Preachers make up words, you know. Uh, and those who were, who were seeing society moving at advance started to see pastoral as not a genre of hopefulness, but actually as a pejorative, getting back to something that we have already passed in a culture that thinks that advance is always one way. In latter development of pastoral work uh, in, in, in the world of literature, we, like, like everything else, you know, in our day and time, we are never presently anything. We are always post-something, right? <laughs> so, so there is a whole genre of post-pastoral work, a text that now look at uh, things in which that allow us to, to, and this is where the contemporary nature, poetry, and literature of America fits into this context, that it gives us an opportunity to deal more thoughtfully and poetically with our nature and our environment. Following this rather simplistic view of pastoral literature, then, the idea of pastoral becomes identified with parallel elements in the pastoral uh, within the context of the church in these ways, in the person, meaning shepherds talking to shepherds, how do we think of pastoral as it is a, uh, a description of the person of the pastor uh, about the place and places, city and cities and, and country, and about the struggle to remain relevant as the culture advances. In talking about pastoral in this way, the lessons for us who are doing pastoral preaching are almost too obvious. One one must not limit the understanding of pastoral preaching as a de facto, meaning that it is not a good thing for us to assume that just because pastor is scheduled for preaching that Sunday, that you are going to hear pastoral preaching on that Sunday. That just because it comes from the person who occupies the station of the shepherd does not mean that it is actually in its form and in its in its movement going to be pastoral. Secondly, the preaching pastor ought to avoid a single approach to the responsibility of declaring the themes of return and retreat. I think these are good terms. For, they are biblical terms. The whole thing about being in exile and returning in the Hebrew scripture. This whole idea of turning and retreating from are big theological terms. But pastoral preaching in this day is more than an admonishing of the community to get back to something. In other words, this idea of re the theme of retreat and return can never bow down to the idolatry of nostalgia. It's important to think about proclamation is not just a looking back to get back to some other day, but to push us and press us forward to the yet coming reign of God as well. The preacher must be aware that for some, the very mode of preaching, doing what I'm doing to you now, orally, without pictures moving and, and shapes going. The fact that I'm, I'm talking with you now is for some people in a, in a world of multitasking 
It is, in fact, an outdated mold. Pastoral themes do allow us, and this is the thing I think that's probably the most exciting growing curve or learning curve for those of us who are doing pastoral preaching now, because as we preach, often we're talking about humanity, the salvation of humanity, but we forget, we forget what Paul says in one of his letters to the Corinthians is that the whole creation groans and that there is a sense and a need for us to talk responsibly about our, our stewardship, not as some teach uh, dominion, our stewardship of the earth and its resources. There's a, there's a lot of opportunity for us to weigh in. Some of us um, feel like this is outside the purview of what it means to be pastor talking and preaching about ecological themes and na- themes of nature and the preservation of this planet and all the things we need to do to be responsible so that we don't suck all the oil, gas, and everything out and the whole thing collapses, right? This is an important thing for us to think about. Well, that's from looking at uh, the world of literature from a historical view. Now, I want you to fast forward with me to um, talk into uh, something I'm going to classify today as literature, uh, but in the broadest sense of literature, in that it is poetry and other, and I want to talk some now about the contribution that Jay-Z makes to pastoral preaching. And I want to say to you, next, with your Bible and everything else you're reading, one of the things you must read as a preacher is Jay-Z's Decoded. And I will tell you why. Because all of us are taught in our first preaching classes that in order to be a good preacher, you have to have exegetical rigor. You've got to be able to pull apart uh, words, and you've got to do some form criticism, Heilgeschichte, and these other things that, that the Germans have given us, right? Form criticism, literary criticism, rhetorical criticism, social criticism, all of these things we have to bring to bear when we look at a text because we know that that text is not just words standing there, that it itself is, in fact, the, um, the creation of a community that has embraced and uh, began to hold it as sacred text. Well, the wonderful thing, and those of you who buy your books on iPad and Kindle, you're going to miss one of the most important things about, about this book. And that is that when you open, what Jay-Z does is that he gives you on the left page, he gives you the lyrics of one of his creations. And on the right page, annotated footnotes of all the things that went into those words. So you get the backdrop, all these things that you are supposed to get as a preacher, you are getting them, you're seeing them modeled for you. Now I must say, and we'll talk about this, um, this, this, some of the words in here will bother you. And I want to talk about that because it's a shame that the only people who are bothering folks with their words are hip-hop artists and not preachers. Uh, Decoded, decoded. 
and, and Jay-Z didn't go to seminary, so he doesn't, he wouldn't call it exegesis, but you would call it exegesis. It is, in fact, his, his decoding or deconstructing or opening up these texts. We are told, that, as good preachers, that we ought to be thinking about this, and that uh, in Decoded, uh, Jay-Z has an intentional attempt to provide his audience with the form, literary, historical, social, contextual criticism of his writings and sayings. Here are a few observations I want to make. When you read him, you, you note, when you read this annotated uh, uh, expression of his work, you see that as an artist, Jay-Z has, takes much care and carefulness in his words. It is, he is doing more than just finding words that rhyme. His words, one of, the, one of the problems with our work is that a lot of the stuff we talk about to people is in abstraction. So people have concepts. Um, and, but but Jay-Z, there's no conception, right? There's no concept there. It is, it is language that is tangible. Sometimes it caresses you. Other times it, it punches you in the stomach and takes your breath out of you. Sometimes for some people it offends you. I would never say that in the pulpit. But you need to be aware that those that, that those forms of raw and direct language are much better and easier for a culture to grab than the abstractions of, we talk about the delayed parousia. <laughs> they're tangible, they're felt, the language is concrete. In this text, we find this painstaking exactness in his words. Secondly, we realize that the work that he is doing is not just word work. It is not just finding words. It is also observing and being a, an observer and a, an interpreter of context and culture. Let me read a piece to you. Uh, let us go to our text. <laughs> Where? It say, on, let me see, let me find the page. One of the problems with the, with the new folks who put these books together, the images are so big, you can't always find the page numbers when you need them. But here, Jay-Z makes this observation. To tell the story of the kid with the gun without telling the story of why he has it, is to tell a kind of lie. Yeah. To tell the story of the pain without telling the story of the rewards, the money, the girls, the excitement, is a different kind of evasion. To talk, and, and let, I'm going to say a word, and I'm going to deconstruct it for you in a moment. To talk about killing niggas dead without talking about waking up in the middle of the night from a dream about the friend you watched to die or not getting to sleep in the first place because you're so paranoid from the work you're doing is a lie so deep it is criminal. I wanted to tell stories and boast, to entertain and to dazzle with creative rhymes. But everything 
I said has to be rooted in the truth of experience. I owed it all to the hustlers I met or grew up with who didn't have a voice to tell their own stories and to myself. Now, I said a word that might offend some people. Um, and let me say, it's for me to say and not for you to say. All right? Secondly, um, I don't like using the euphemism because we say that almost more vulgarly than we do the word. In other words, I hate it when people say, she called him the N-word. It's there. It's in your face. I, again, it's for me to say, not for you to say. Right? Don't try this at home. This is, a, <laughs> this is a professional driving on a closed track right there. <laughs> but it's important for us. And this, this is why we have, to, we have to talk about these words and spin them around. And of course, his, and his use of the word um, if you did an etymological study of the way he uses the word, it is a little different from the, the word, way in which it has been used historically. It is also spelled differently. But I don't want to get into all that because that would take us into a whole other direction. And just like anything else, in the question and answer period, we'll spend all our time talking about niggas and nothing else. So, student of culture. He does just what the theologian Karl Barth, and interesting, his name has come up a lot this week, has told us to do, is to do the work with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. His understanding of, of the context, the need, and to, who, and to whom he is speaking, and to whom he owes uh, his work. The hustlers who taught him how to do it, and the young ones coming up. Well... He gives us another thing. He talks about rhythm, which is so important for us. But he breaks down rhythm in ways that would be so helpful to us as preachers and pastors. He says there are two components of, of rhythm. One is the beat. And he says the beat is always going on. There's a beat going on right now. There's a certain cadence or beat even into my speech. There's the beat of your heart going on right now. There is the beat. Uh, there, there are social political beats going on. There, there's all kinds of beating going on. The, the, the first task of the rapper, he will say, and I will say the preaching pastor, is to find the beat, to hear what's going on. To, and to be uh, and to find that beat, to hear it clearly, to hear it clearly so it can be expressed with equal clarity, to hear the beat. But that's not it. The beat is what is going on around us. But inside of each of us is what Jay-Z would call the flow. Now, you got the beat going on. It's already going on. Your job as a rapper is to to express your flow. It, that is to spit your rhyme in relationship to that beat. It means to talk into the beat in such a way that your particular expression, which is your flow, 
is either uh, a movement with the beat, sometimes of fighting and resistance. You will hear some rappers who, who the beat is going one way and you can hear their voice going in a whole nother way. The beat is going at this position and the map is going that is that that is the expression of flow and in order for us to have rhythm we got to have both beat and flow some of us are just beat folks we have no flow we have nothing to say of our own we're just saying whatever the beat says some of us are only flow and all we do is flow with no beat we are so out of step with what's going on with the people who are around us. We have no context for understanding that that flow must always have itself in relationship to the beat. Well, so. The other thing which Jay-Z gives us is that there is an importance in his work uh, for mentoring and modeling. Uh, we see this in the prelude that I prayed before you that was actually a, a hip-hop duo between Kanye West and Jay-Z. Kanye was actually followed Jay-Z around for a while, as Jay-Z did with other rappers, and that this idea of mentoring and modeling what needs to be done. We do this in relationship to our preaching, but not enough in relationship to our understanding of loving people and being pastors. Well, um, a careful study of Dakota has to be made in a larger context of Jay-Z's life. He models what it means to be an artist, but he also models what it means to mature and evolve as an artist. I remember watching an, an interview with him uh, and as you know him, when he first started out, he was wearing the throwback jerseys, the Timberlands and all the things. Uh, and, then, and then he started dressing up in designer suits, ties, and you know, looking like the front page of GQ magazine. And somebody asked him, Jay-Z, notice your image has changed. You're not wearing the throwbacks anymore. And his response was, well, at some point you have to grow up. How many of us as pastors and preachers are stuck in the model and the means and the method that we were doing when we first got started? At some point, we have to grow up homiletically. We have to grow up and, and make some things happen. We, uh, our preaching ought not be the same. We are not placed as pastor to change the congregation, but to model for the congregation what a changed sojourner looks like with all of his or her shortcomings, flaws, and fractures. Finally, with these things said then, I want to define pastoral preaching uh, as an intentionally providing both the language and the relationships that form or create communities framed around the ethic of love. Pastoral preaching is both providing the space and the speech that gives rise to these things in a community. First, solace. Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort my people, saith the Lord. People coming to hear us on, in that community are hurting in many ways. It is our responsibility to, to give words of comfort. Solace. Secondly, and I want us to, I'll stop after this and give you a chance to help me redefine these words if, if possible. Secondly, it's sanctuary. There needs to be 
sanctuary, safe space, and safe words in preaching as a pastor. To remember that people need a place of safety in the midst of a world that is an onslaught of violence against their very souls. Sanctuary, and then I want to push another word close to that, sanctuary, and I get this from my United Methodist friends who talk about progressive uh, sanctification, um, and that is sanctity. Difference from a safe space. But sanctity now, when I talk about sanctity, I'm talking about the setting apart, the sanctification. A part of that sanctification is what I described in Jay-Z, is the maturity of the person. The setting apart, that's the place where the daske, the teaching element of pastoral preaching happens. We want the people who come to hear us to, to not only have safe space, but we want to call them into a higher understanding of themselves as the people of God. Sanctity. And the thing that some people may think should be first is actually last, salvation. That is, in this world in which so much of life looks unredeemable, that it is our responsibility as pastoral preachers to keep talking about salvation and to understand that that salvation is, is personal, but it is not private. That people can be individually uh, saved, but cannot stay. Their understanding of salvation is always in relationship to the community. So, all that is to say that what we do as pastors, preachers matters. And the way it matters is that love matters. People matter. And our words matter. Thank you. Sure, sure. I'd be interested. It's all fair game. Yes, sir. I'm so glad you asked that question. That is the first chapter of this book. <laughs> and that one, one, one of the things we do in, when we talk about preaching is that we talk, and, and, and larger theological education, even the way our schools train people, uh, if you look across all the 200 and some odd seminaries, they, they are usually divided into two categories. A, those who teach people to be priestly, and those who be are taught to be prophetic. And there's this false dichotomy between priestly and prophetic, which I would argue is, um, is combined in pastoring, that is rooted in a love for people and relationship with them. Oh, let, me, let me say it this way. Uh, I, I'm blessed to have married the woman that I met in seminary. We've been happily married for 23 years. She can say some things to me that other people cannot say. Right? She can say, you lazy rascal, something like that. And I under, because I love her and she loves me, we have an understanding. Right? 
that language is, 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 is conditioned by our relationship. But if you walked up to me and said that to me and you never met me, um, in the words of Bernie Mac, Bernie Mac, we're about to have a misunderstanding. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? 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 right. You know, you know. So that what happens to us when we go into, the ch into churches to start out, that we think our job is to be prophetic. Our job is to love the people. Love the people, and because I love you, I will tell you the truth. But don't assume I can tell you the truth until we have a relationship, because there might be a misunderstanding. All right, all right. All right. Other questions? You all are worn out, aren't you? Uh -huh. I, I like what you were saying about the language Yes, I'm writing now. I'm, in fact, I'm writing on this. Um, it's interesting. I always said when I when I put a book out, I would never do a series of sermons. Right? But in fact, what I'm putting out is a series of sermons from John 13 to 15, uh, and, which actually is the place in which Jesus tells them in in contemporary culture, one of the things you hear, you have to be a servant leader, have to be a servant leader, have to be a servant leader. That kind of thing is romanticized by people who have never been servants. But Jesus says in John 15, after he's been with these rascals for a long time, I no longer call you servants but friends because a servant does not know what his master is doing. So this, this, this whole creation of getting people to understand our relationship with each other, with God and all as, as friends, comes from, um, so that's the, that's, the, that's the preaching part. But there, I set it up by talking about why we, it's important for us to preach series sermons as pastors. You ought to always be in some larger project. Uh, Jim Forbes used to tell us at Union, shame on you preachers who who spend all night Saturday night lusting after text to preach on Sunday. There ought to be some sense in which we are, um, we, we are planning some preaching that, that is informed by that love of the, of the community, and we are feeding them. One of the fallacies of contemporary preaching is that it looks like it's so thorough. You hear, you hear some of these folks, listen, point, sub, point, sub, sub, point, sub, sub, A, B, C, da, 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 da. And when you finish that, you say, I got it. You go home and you try to do it and you can't because there's a fallacy that if you just do it logically and thorough, as they say, there's always that juxtaposition that always pushes back at you. So January, the book should be out. It's going to be called, I think. No, it's not, not going to be called, I think. It's going to be called uh, the, the Power of a Single Heart. Power of a Single Heart. Yes? You were talking about Jay-Z growing up, and um, you talked about growing up homiletically. Mm -hmm. So for a young preacher, is there a fast track to growing up homiletically? No. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. And, and, and you know what? That, that's, that's a wonderful question because that, that's, that's such... Such a wonderful encapsulation of, of, of the culture in which, in which we live, that there is a fast track. There's, there's an instant way. Draw it down. Can I, can I reach up into the drop box and pull it out? You know, uh, that kind of thing. No, um, the, the, because relationships take time. 
And if, if love, is, if, if love is, a, is being in a relationship with people, then it takes time. And you're, you're not going to grow. And those people will grow you, too. The people will grow you, which is the wonderful thing. Uh, yes? Um, what do you do with the um, whole idea of speaking the truth in love? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm from the Bahamas. We, we have battles right now going on in a lot of our communities. Um, the whole issue of gay and lesbian issues mm-hmm. very big. A lot of fundamentalist churches, uh, one of their frequent statements is a group of pastors who write in the papers all the time that they, they love the person, but they hate the sin. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, there are people in their, their churches and communities that they're, that they're preaching uh, to every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you couch that yeah. in what you're saying? And also with the issue of immigration, which sure. is another issue you struggle with, sure. with the Haitian community. Sure. How do you do that uh, from the perspective you spoke from today? Sure. Great question. Um, first, um, I think it's important for us uh, the, the text that uh, Anna Florence Carter used the other day about, on her sermon about the catching of the fish. This is one of the, this is one of the ways in which, you know, and when you, when you preach, ch- choose, choose a version that helps you get to the point you tried to make. In other words, there's, there's a text, the text says, and they caught a great multitude of fish. Now, if you read that in the New Revised Standard Version, it says of fish. If you read in the King James Version, one of the few times I like going back there, is it says fish is. Now, you know the difference between a whole lot of fish and a multitude of fish is. It is by, it is by definition more inclusive. Now, go back to the sermon I preached yesterday. One of the things I'm, I was getting at in this is this whole idea is if we change our orientation toward the tomb, as not a place that's empty, because we can, we can look at people and say who's empty and who's full according to our thing. But if we look at it as open, then we have an opportunity to throw out the larger net there. Now I'm back to the other metaphor, both resurrection metaphors, by the way. Throw out the larger net and draw in all types of fishes. We don't have a right. One of the, well, again, one of the fallacies of contemporary church models is niche marketing. Whatever's in your community... If you have a real church, it ought to be in your church. Otherwise, your church is really divorced. People just driving in, walking into something. If it does not represent every expression of humanity that is in your neighborhood ought to be in your church. And ought not feel, again, ought to feel this as a place of sanctuary. That's why I go to sanctuary. Because churches beat up a whole lot of people. And some of us are going to really have to answer for uh, some of the things we have done in the Lord's name. And that's, and that's, that's the kind of tension you hear from Jay-Z also, is that, you know, uh, lies on the lips of priests. And when he says it, he doesn't say priest. He says, lies on the lips of priests. We have to work out some of that. So, I mean, the, for me, this, this understanding of the community basis means that I have to also kind of understand who's in my community and why they are important, and who's not there, and why they may not be there too, which is also a very important question. A very important question to raise. But thank you for that. Yes. Um, I want to ask you a question about relationships. Okay. Okay, so first I have to say something really about the point you just made mm. because um, 
it's not until preachers begin to make a stance to debunk some of the scriptures that are used to support the hatred towards homosexuals that we're ever going to uh, make any kind of move. And unfortunately, the world is ahead of the church on that. Yes, exactly. Agree. Uh, where normally the church leads well. morality and ethics when they look at issues like this. Yeah. So that's the sad part. But but let, hold, let me, I'm glad you said it because now you give me another segue into this um, and because I think it's, it's important for us, you know, that, that love the, the, the love the sinner, hate the sin thing is, is, is cliche. Again, search for deeper kinds of ways um, to understand this. Here, here is the, the question for us. Um, and part of our problem is that the church is no longer a leader in moral direction. It is coming from other places. And some of this, some of what I've described as the getting back to, this is the nostalgic thing. Let's get back to a place when the church was just filled with us wonderful heterosexual people who don't sin. And who, and, and, and I, tell my, I tell my preaching students, I tell my preaching students, the question, we ask the wrong question. It's the reframing of the question. The question is not, how do you feel about whether that being a homosexual is a, makes you a sinner? The question is, does being a heterosexual make you righteous? Now, when you frame it that way, you're dealing with this question. Some people can't take that. You've got to hug them into it. You ever see the boxers? You know, boxers getting themselves beat up. Come here, Emilio, for a moment. Emilio's, Emilio's, he's ready, too. He's ready. Now, now he's, he's, he's punching the devil out of me. So I go up. I hug him. I hug him. And why? He can't swing on me now. Right? See, we do a little more of that. We, we'll keep people from swinging on it. Sometimes you got to get at those people. This is what pastoring is about. Sometimes the relationship, your, 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 your segue to the other, is to is some of the folks, you got to hug some folks who have every intention of knocking you out. Yeah. Okay, I just want to get that in. Okay. See, I'm arguing that you can't preach and teach to people if you're not among them. I mean, again, this is this is this was what I was trying to get at when I said that uh, we treat preaching as an out-of-body experience. You know, I, I was told of a, of a church where pastor came in for an afternoon uh, service to preach in another church, and uh, his car came in, and there were the guys like uh, you all saw the movie with Clint Eastwood when they were guarding the president. They're running by the car behind them, whispering to each other in their sleeves. The, the bishop is coming. The bishop is coming. Oh, and you know, some of that is that we have. And, and this is my critique of Jay Z, right? Here's my critique of Jay Z: is that with all the things I said about him, I still know that his dominant uh, um, idea is American capitalism. 
right? And I, I can't get away from this consumer consumption thing, which is the anathema of the gospel in many ways. And so that a lot of us have gotten into these, um, these places where we feel that in order to be important, we have to look important. But I don't want to be in a church, and one of the things, uh, I'm grateful, um, uh, Alice's work uh, from the other day about the small churches. I think it's a fallacy to think that, that large churches cannot have community with the pastor. I think, unfortunately, some of us get into large churches because we don't like people. <laughs> right? But I don't, I don't, I'll tell you a really quick vignette from yesterday. When I left on Saturday, on Sunday, Sunday evening, a young man, about 49, died, right? Now, you heard me say I've done about 700 funerals in these 20 years. I do every funeral, right? If I'm somewhere, I'll fly back. I'll do, I, that's my job. And people are amazed at those funerals. I can tell a story about everybody who died. So where did he get that from? Now, yesterday, 15 minutes before I was going to preach, I get a call from the widow. I told her that I, I, I was in Atlanta and I'd do anything, but they'll work everything out. Sunday is also the celebration of my 21st anniversary as a pastor, right? So churches, and I'm, they're welcoming me back and all those kind of things. So there's some, fest, some, some fun festivities going on after service. So when she called the, the office to say, uh, we want to have Memorial Hall as the... Um, as a space for a repast after service, the secretary at the church said, oh no, you can't use Memorial Hall on Saturday because we're decorating it for the pastor's anniversary. <laughs> yes, I, I don't, you, you, you worry about what you're, I'll take care of it. Speed dial. <laughs> Hello, yes, I want you to tell the family that there's no problem with them having, no problem at all with them having their repast in Memorial Hall. Don't you know that I just got back from three and a half months of being away and the people already are a little leery of us entering back into a relationship? Somebody saying he just showed up so we could have the anniversary for him. Right? I said, I don't need that as a pastor and that this family comes first. I don't care if you don't decorate anything. I'm just glad to be back with you. I'll see you on Sunday afternoon. I expect things to go as it planned. Goodbye. <laughs> the first thing the person said to me on the other side was, they called you for that? I said, yes, they called me for that. They called you. They bothered. It wasn't a bother. The bother was you didn't know how to handle it when it came to you. I'm sorry, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. You know? but that, so I think, I think it's a fallacy to think because I'm in a bigger church, I, I can be less accessible. I want to know folks in the congregation that I, that I serve. And that's important. That's a part of the fuel that gives me an opportunity. And also, here's a question. Ordination question really quickly. Some, uh, 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 Pastor Howell just talked about this, about authority in preaching. Where does your authority come from as a preacher? You gave the answer that's right. He said congregation. But, you know, I had a young person, a, young, a newer preacher say, not young, say, 
our authority comes from God who, or, who calls us. I say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, time out. Even your concept of calling comes from community. It is the people who give you authority to preach. It is not an authority expressed over them. It is a permission that they give you as expressing one of the parts of your body, as being a part of the body of Christ. And those of us who miss that, who only think that it is God, you know, and here's a check. Got to be careful. In this, in our modern culture, let me give you the definition of anointing. I hear this a lot, anointing. That was an, the definition of anointing in many contemporary churches is, I'm not accountable to anybody. I'm anointed. I'm not accountable. I don't have to touch you. All I got to do is come preach to you and teach you. I don't do anything else. And you, and you can't tell me what I should be teaching or preaching about. I'm not accountable. And, and we have to push back against that and say that it is, it, is the, it is the community that gives us the authority to even understand words. like, And that's why it's the pastor's job to help create the language that gives life and, and, and freedom to all the people within the community. I saw your hand. Did you have a question? No, I'm just really thankful to hear you say that about the economy. Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm sorry for what I have to say. the population, there seems to be an incredible struggle with the accountability. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and here and here's the thing. I mean, and again, accountability doesn't doesn't mean that you are perfect. But I preach grace all the time. All the time I preach grace. You know why? Because at some point I'm gonna need it myself. You know. But when you when you preach a really kind of if this is what happened, you preach consequence and punishment and judgment. When it comes your time, and it inevitably will will become your time. You have no choice. You are stuck. You are a creature of your. So I preach grace to everybody. Because I never know when I'm a need. I'm a candidate for grace every day. And I think it's important for us to, to, to have this. And I, and I really do believe that there's, that, that there's going to be a revolution. Be a revolution on this, on this matter. Because we, we are treating our churches like Ponzi schemes. Old airplanes. Thing you know the pyramid scheme. You bring four hundred dollars, I bring him four hundred dollars. When you get to the top of pyramid, you get all the four hundred dollars. Well, now we're discovering that only the people who start the thing get the, all the money, and the people who get in at the bottom get nothing but fleeced. It's important. It's an important thing we got to talk about and push against this this kind of consumerism even in our work. You know, in in some of these conferences and all, you know. Uh, the T-shirts, the Bibles, the, 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 you know, the books, the DVDs, the video, the MP3s, all of that. Um, the cachet that comes from that. Or oh, I heard, and I've heard people talk about some of the mega church uh, preaching. I would call a name, but you would know. And this is not really mega church. This is what Televent, who, who went to hear somebody in Madison Square Garden. And she sounded like, as she got finished talking to me on the plane, she sounded like a groupie who had just slept with Mick Jagger. That was her. I saw here and here. Yes. I guess the only concern that I'm left with and the tension has been throughout this whole period of time we've been together 
the here I stand, I can do no other. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you love your congregation, you, you see basically uh, people sacrificed all the time by the church. Uh, you know, how, how, when is it, uh, how do you determine the moment when you finally realize I, I, I cannot choose to make my congregation happy? And to do what they would prefer than I say you do. Yeah. Well, I think you always struggle with that. I think that's constant, and that's in any relationship. You know, I, again, back to, to back to my marriage, and not to hold that as like the. I, there, there's some times when it's just I don't like living with me. You understand what I'm saying? I get tired of me. I know she gets tired of me at times, right? There's some moments in which there's always going to be a tension about that. Uh, but I think that's why the life, the, the devotional life of the pastor is important. That in addition to uh, being in community, one also has to engage in the practices that will give strength of inner person. So that these, when these moments happen, that there will be some assurances in the midst of it. Yes? I really appreciate that you highlight the importance of relationship mm-hmm. preaching. Mm-hmm. But when a preacher is invited to occasions or places where they have to preach without having a relationship. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, good. Okay, this is what I do. When I go somewhere, she asks, what did I talk about? I'm going to repeat it. I, she, she's talking about relationships. I'm talking about preaching. And I realize I'm talking about a very specific type of preaching, pastoral preaching. But what happens when you're invited to preach somewhere else and you don't have a relationship with those people? What do you do? Okay, this is what I do. Typically, when I go somewhere, somebody picks me up if I'm flying in at the airport. So we begin. So how are you? So fine, fine. So um, thank you for picking me up. Are you from here originally? You're a native? Or did you come here from somewhere else? I'm picking up data. You know, I'm forming relations. I'm asking some questions. So how long have you been in the church? Now, I don't ask anything about do you like your pastor or anything like that. <laughs> I ask things about that person. Tell, tell me about what... Well, who, are the, who are the major employers in this town? So I'm picking up all kind of data. The other thing I do is, is when I get to wherever I'm going to be, I grab the newspaper from that town. The newspaper tells you something about cultural values and what is valued. The most important things are going to be in the front of the paper. The, the, the least important things are going to be in the back, typically. Right? So you look on the front page. For example, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, when it was still very much farming land. On the front page of the, of the, the Columbus Dispatch every morning were the soybean, corn, and pork report. Yeah. Boom! <laughs> now, it's not there anymore, so that says something about it. Like, for example, the New York Times doesn't have any funny paper. Do you really want to read a newspaper every day that doesn't have any comics in it? <laughs> this says something about these kind of things are opportunities to grab. Talk to the people, whomever, and not just the pastor. Again, because it's not relationship with the pastor. It's relationship with the people. So you, you get up and you say, well, you know, I want to thank uh, Brother John for, for, I asked him to stop me off at the drugstore so I could get a cough drop to preach today. He was kind enough to do that. You make, you, you're making community you know it's sometimes preachers do this when they get up and they tell a joke at the beginning that's some kind of way to kind of throw out a balloon to to kind of create some community but as soon as people like I don't I don't like to be locked up in the door I want to be 
at a place, in particular unfamiliar place, at least 45 minutes early. And I don't like the, pe- I don't like the preacher to put me back in the room and talk to me about stuff. I go out and I meet the people. And some of them, you know, sometimes you go to church and you find out things. You walk through the, you walk through the, through the uh, fellowship hall and you're a stranger and nobody speaks to you. Oh, ha, that's interesting, right? That's, that, there's a cue. There's a cue. Or somebody says, you know, or you go in and you try to sit inconspicuously and they say, no, these seats are saved for somebody else. That tells you something. You need to pay attention to some of those kind of signals that people give you. But you walk in, you talk to people, hi, how are you? They're saying, you know, and, and please, preachers, please, 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 please. Don't introduce yourself as Reverend Dr. Bishop something. That's not the name your mother gave you. My, my mother named me Gary Vincent Simpson, and my friends who knew me as a small child knew me as Pee Wee. Okay, go ahead and laugh. Right? When I introduce somebody, to myself to somebody, you walk in Concord Church, because I don't always dress like a pastor either. That's the other thing. Sometimes I'm thugging and bugging, you know? I come in, I come in. And this is the other thing I want to say about Jay-Z really quickly. Part of my interest in him comes out of repentance and confession. My church is on Marcy Avenue at, at the north end of the block. Marcy Avenue Projects, where Jay-Z was doing all of his work, is 10 blocks to the, north, to the south of me. And I missed it for 20 years. I ain't saying I was going to go over there and save all the people that get Jay-Z to sing in the Sunshine Band and all that. But I should have been in that context at least trying to find out what it is, this gospel I'm preaching, and if it has any relevance to the people there. So one day I had on my, had on my uniform, leather coat, cap bent down, and a guy came in to the door and said, uh, I need to see the pastor. I said, um, I was out in the hallway. Do you, do you have an appointment? Uh, yeah, he knows I'm coming. <laughs> I said, um, which pastor is that? Well, you know, the older man, the bald-headed guy, um, he told me to meet him. I said, oh, he's not here today, and I just walked out. <laughs> you know, you know, he's looking for an image of pastor. He didn't expect it to be me. You know, and, and, but it's about being in relationship with folks and picking, picking that community, being able to not be afraid. Let me put it this way. You should talk to the people in your congregation more than on Sunday morning at 11.15. Yeah. Sometimes, and I'll share this with you and I'm done, this has to do also with public praying. So we have a pastoral prayer in our order of service, and I pray. Sometimes I get up to pray, and I, all the people come forward, come to the altar, hold hands, and we sing, and I get ready to give that great King James prayer. You know the one, Godeth, thou knoweth, our wayeth, right? I'm getting ready to pray that prayer in eloquence and articulation, and I hear a voice that says, ah, Mr. Simpson, funny to hear your voice this morning. Curious that I haven't heard you talk to me since this time last Sunday. 
sorry. <laughs> All right. It's important to model the kind of behavior you want the people to do. If, they, if I want them to pray, I got to pray. Daily. Right? It's a part of responsibility. That's, that's a part of accountability. I owe it to the people to do more than just speak at them what I think God has told me that way. I don't know how long you have, but I do have a plane I should catch at some point. Uh, but it's been wonderful to talk to you. Yes, sir. Um, when I hear you talk about the elements of pastor preaching, soul, let's say, preaching, salvation, I was wondering how you work healing ministries yeah. and all that. Yeah. 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 That that comes all under the auspices. We don't have like healing services per se. I know people do wonderful things with healing, liturgies, etc. But but that that is a part a of the comfort, right? And it is also one of the one of the things I was thinking about adding to this is sanity in this world that is just insane. That is a it's a job, but I I worry that people push sanity to give it another syllable called sanitize. I don't want that. I don't want to sanitize it. And the other thing is I, I want I want to be careful that I'm sensitive to the healing that needs to happen for people who have mental disease and illness. So I don't, I don't want to put that up. It's not kind of like saying, uh, always talking about, I was blind and now I see. Or to talk to say something that, 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 that shows um, somebody's differently ability, different ability uh, as yours and to highlight these kind of things. Um, so uh, I want to find a way to talk about that, that gives, give, empowers people to create the language themselves, too. So we do that in other ways, but I would think that that would be a part of the, the comfort. It's not just a pat on the back. It is also the kind of bringing people to a fuller sense of, 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 their, human, of their authentic humanity. Yeah. Good question. Thank you for letting me put that in that section of the book. Give me a name. I'll give you a footnote. <laughs> I don't tweet, because I, I don't tweet, but I do Facebook, and I'm on there. Gary V. Simpson, you're welcome to friend me, and we can continue this conversation in some other ways. All right. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University. Please visit us at emory.edu.